Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, guys, we're less than a year out, less than a year out from Election Day 2024. Please do all you can in your states, in your neighborhoods, in your communities to be involved. Guys, be your own bullhorn. Get involved with the Lincoln Project, lincolnproject.us or jointheunion.us. Go and find a campaign near your house. Run for something. Sign up to be a volunteer at a polling place. Do what you can. You don't have to do everything, gang, but you have to do that one thing. Figure out what that one thing is and go out and make it happen. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Gala. Today, I'm joined by Will Bunch, author and national opinion columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. In addition to his role at the Inquirer, his latest book is After the Ivory Tower Falls, which was published last year and explores politics on college campuses. Today, he's coming to us from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Will, welcome. Yeah, hey, Reed. Thanks for having me. I really, I really appreciate it a lot. So can I tell you that my first experience in Philadelphia was at a Phillies game at the Vet when I was 13. Oh, my gosh. The concrete plastic bowl, yeah. And I don't remember who they were playing, but whoever it was, they really didn't like them because there was a hail of beer and batteries from like (laughs) the right field wall onto the players below. And it just always stuck with me that if you're going to go to Philadelphia, you better come prepared. Yep. Well, Jason Kelsey did the famous chant, we're from Philly, nobody likes us, which everybody in the city has embraced. You know, we we love being hated. So, uh it's worked out. It's been a good arrangement. People like to hate us. We like to be the way we are. And somehow it works for Philadelphia. Go figure. What do you think it is? I mean, all kidding aside, I mean, your, your teams have a particular ethos. Your fans have a particular ethos. What is it? I mean, it's not New York City. It's not Chicago, the city of the big shoulders. It's not the swamp of Washington, D.C. Like, what is it about Philadelphia? Well, I think, Reed, you kind of actually maybe unintentionally hit it in a nutshell because we're not any of those things. And, you know, I mean, the legend is that Philadelphia has a chip on its shoulder, right? Because it's between New York and Philly. It's not the capital. It's not Wall Street. You know, after the whole Declaration of Independence thing, we kind of went off on this blue collar industrial revolution jag that didn't fully work out. And, um, you know, we're this huge city between the two cities that everybody talks about. And, you know, it's the old grievance and resentment thing, which we'll probably be talking about when we get to politics. But Philadelphia has got its own grievances and resentments. You know, it's funny because, you know, Philadelphia's reputation was kind of a world class city and great restaurants and a place to visit has really changed a lot in the last 25 years. And you can see that's kind of changed the ethos a little bit. In fact, there's been some talk about the fans are just as passionate, but maybe not the battery throwing variety like they used to be. So let's talk a little bit about your work. So you are a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And the reason why I reached out to you was because I read something that you wrote just about a month ago in the Inquirer, your column, and it said, quote, America needs to talk about the right's, quote, Red Caesar plan for U.S. dictatorship. Thought leaders of the far right talk openly about a 2025 dictatorship. People need to be alarmed. And it's interesting because, you know, just yesterday there was another story that, you know, Trump's people are talking about on day one invoking the Insurrection Act so that if Trump gets reinaugurated or inaugurated another time, that, you know, they can immediately deploy troops out into the streets to 
scare off any protesters because, of course, we saw in what was that 2017? Remember the day? First of all, he had a very small crowd. Yeah, the J20 protesters. Right, the J20 protesters. And then on January 21st, we had this massive women's rally. So tell us about the Red Caesar. Give our listeners a sense of what that means and what the right wingers are talking about. What I found fascinating and why I wrote the piece is I was not aware, you know, until there was, there was some good reporting. The Guardian had a piece, and there's a few other people who've been kind of out there on this topic, the fact that the right-wing think tanks, or not even right-wing, the, the kind of Trumpy think tanks, I'm talking about the Claremont Institute in particular, Hillsdale College, which is doing a lot of our right-wing school curriculums these days, have been promulgating this idea that there needs to be something like a dictatorship, a forceful response to dismantle what they see as you know, the administrative state or the deep state. You know, their feeling is that liberals have kind of won the culture war in, in that they control all of the bureaucracies, all the federal agencies, you know, the media, academia, the usual suspects, right? You know, that this control is so entrenched that the only way to beat it is to have a, a red Caesar who would almost certainly suspend or go around certain constitutional norms and, and, and rules, you know, to wipe these people out of the government, get rid of these agencies or the people of the agencies, clamp down on the media. You know, it's basically a dictatorship. And uh, I think there's a real disconnect in the way that Trump and his campaign has been covered for the last year or so. You know, I think the average public, you know, they see him get on a plane, he goes out to Houston or some other, or Iowa or some other city. He gives kind of an unhinged talk. You know, CNN or the New York Times might do a story on the most unhinged thing that he says, or you'll see some posts on the left about how Trump's losing his mind worse than Biden, you know, what, whatever. And uh, he gets on his plane and goes back. And there's this sense that nobody talks about what would actually happen on January 21st, 2025, the first full day of a Trump presidency. And it's terrible because these ideas and plans are out there. And he's got think tanks. He's got Stephen Miller and his old advisors from his first term, they have a lot more plans than people realize. You know, there is something called Project 2025. Sure. That, yeah, from the Heritage Foundation. Yeah, yeah. the Heritage Foundation that I worked on, which is this very detailed blueprint for dismantling federal government and regulations, undoing any action on climate change, etc. You know, since in the month since I wrote the Red Caesar article, there have been a couple pieces. I think the one that was in the Washington Post yesterday that you mentioned was definitely the most dramatic. You know, not not only that Trump is seriously considering invoking the Insurrection Act, literally the you know the minute after he takes the oath of office, and having I don't know how this would work logistically, but you know to have tanks roll into D.C. supposedly to put down any protest because I'm sure there will be protests if he becomes the 47th president. That same article in the Post also said that. You know, he's got an enemies list, just like Nixon, you know, of people that he wants to have investigated and prosecuted. And it's just a crazy list, you know, Mark Milley and like Ty Cobb, uh, not the baseball player, but the lawyer that, who represented Trump for a time, Bill Barr, people like that. Just a few days earlier, the New York Times reported that Trump has plans to get rid of established institutional lawyers in the government, even even like conservative federal society types. Right. The Federalist Society now, Will, are squishes. They're not conservative enough. 
yeah, they're too soft for um, the second Trump era. You know, replace them with fiercely loyal MAGA America First lawyers. And when you think about it, what, well, what does that mean practically? You know, think back to January 6th, 2021, you know, two days, whatever, January 3rd or 4th, he was going to try and, and use Jeffrey Clark in this ploy to use the Justice Department to try and muck up the vote count by starting an investigation in Georgia. And these government lawyers, the people that Trump wants to get rid of, stood up and said, we're going to resign en masse if you do that. And it worked. And he, he didn't do it. And they want to make sure that whatever the situation, Trump needs that type of legal representation. He wants to make sure that it's not squishy federal society by the book lawyers, that it's people who will do whatever it takes for Trump. Now, let me ask you this, because you've just spent several minutes outlining some pretty scary stuff. Why don't people believe it? Well, it's funny because I'm actually I'm, I'm writing my newsletter that comes out tomorrow, my weekly newsletter. And, you know, I'm addressing the Washington Post article, the fact that Trump seems to be gaining, not losing in the polls recently. I mean, polls a year out can be. Right. They're a year out. Not right. meaningless. But the, yeah, they're a year out. Yeah. And I think one thing is that as crazy and as, as sometimes unconstitutional as Trump's first term was, if you look back at the first two or three years of his presidency, the craziness, you know, firing attorney generals and the head of the FBI and the Ukraine scandal that he got impeached for, all of those things didn't really affect the average person. And it was a time when the economy was, you know, I think the economy is better now, frankly, but the economy was doing well. Um, the things that really have right-wing media worked up, you know, the two issues, which is what's happening at the border and crime in big cities like Philadelphia. Certainly, whatever the numbers say, certainly there's a, millions of voters believe those problems are worse under Biden than under Trump. And crazy as it sounds, I mean, I think there's a kind of voter out there who sees Trump as a return to normalcy, even though the reality is, is that 180 degree opposite, that it's the start of something incredibly abnormal. But I think these people have been convinced that Biden is the chaos, you know, and, and look at things beyond Biden's control, right? You know, Putin invades Ukraine, you know, you have this madness that's going on in the Middle East right now, you know, inflation, which was a worldwide problem and which you know, has been worse in like European countries than the United States. You know, none of those are like Biden did a bad thing. Right. But in reaction or in response, I would say that he has done the competent, correct thing, the moral thing to the extent possible. I mean, Ukraine is a perfect example, right? I mean, you know, going into it, it's like we don't want Russia to take over Ukraine, you know, all of Ukraine, but we don't want World War Three. And that's like a tightrope to walk, right? And and he's done that. You know, it's not perfect. You know, I know people, some people think he should have gotten them more weapons sooner, but you can't really fault him, you know? And, and the Middle East, I hate to even bring it up because it's such a hot potato, but certainly, you know, I mean, obviously his inclination, his personal inclination has been to be very pro-Israel. And, you know, and Israel was horrifically attacked by Hamas on October 7th. But, you know, we keep reading anyway. I'm not there, but we keep reading that behind the scenes, they're trying to use their influence to tamp down some of the worst retaliatory abuses by Israel. So we'll have to see how that one plays out. On the foreign policy stuff, well, I'm sorry to interrupt, is he's much more in the Reagan, George H.W. Bush, even Kennedy sort of mold, right? 
he is not Barack Obama. He is not Bill Clinton. Right. He is not someone, you know, who's like, I don't quite know where I'm supposed to be here. I'm going to dance around. I'm going to try and triangulate. I don't you know, I'm going to draw red lines. I'm not going to go through with them. Biden's like, this is right. This is wrong. Right. A, a very definitive American foreign policy that we haven't seen. Yeah. There's a very like FDR in 1940 during the like the Lend-Lease period. Right. You know, it's like he's been able to keep the U.S. from being an active participant in these wars. but you know, he's done all he can to try and steer it, to try and protect democracy. I don't think the average voter cares. You know, I think the average voter just wants like the foreign policy things to the extent that they do care. Like they just want these crises to go away, you know, and not have to deal with them. And like I say, you know, when I talk to conservative people or people on the right, it's the border, it's crime, it's those issues. And, you know, there are real issues happening in those places, but they're also the focus of the of the media that they consume, you know, and that's a big problem for Biden. So I'm a baby boomer. We boomers grew up in the shadow of World War II. And the idea that whatever you want to call it, an, an authoritarian style government could somehow take root in the United States, you know, it felt like we'd already fought that battle and, and won it, you know, that like Sinclair Lewis famously wrote that it really can't happen here. And I don't know, you know, in terms of Going back to your original question of why don't people believe it, you know, how much of it is that still ingrained idea that it can't happen here? I think that's also a big part of it, definitely. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications they help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. So, you know, I was a huge Game of Thrones fan back when it was on. And, and Jorah Mormont, who was, you know, on the other side of the ocean and, you know, was with Khaleesi. He, he had this great quote. He said, the common people pray for rain, health, and a summer that never ends. They don't care what game the high lords play. They hope to be left alone. They never are. <laughs> right. And that's the thing is all this stuff ultimately does not just trickle down, Will, but it flows down. It. And so let's talk about that. Let's get a little nerdy for a second, if you don't mind. So whether or not it's the Red Caesar piece of this or the Project 2025 piece of this, or Steve Bannon being a Leninist, not a John Leninist, but a Vladimir Leninist, talking about the destruction of the administrative state. They talk about this a lot. And that could be all of the buildings on the Capitol Mall, for the most part, all of that stuff being torn asunder. Services, education, Social Security, Medicare, you name it, right? And really the only thing left after that are the power ministries, as they're so-called. Justice, defense intelligence, right, which are then not turned outward towards enemies, but turned inwards as a matter of control. So it's really this nastiness on one side of saying, you, the American people, you get nothing, but also you and the American people, you will do everything you're told and you will say nothing you're not supposed to say. It is a really ugly one-two punch. Yeah. And, and I, I wonder how people, you know, if heaven forbid this comes to pass, you know, it's hard to imagine how the average person is going to respond to this type of government. But, you know, clearly his focus is on revenge. Like you said, I mean, 
there's a lot of focus on the Justice Department, not because I think he wants true justice, but because he wants to do two things, right? He wants to go after those enemies, as we were talking about earlier. He also wants to, you know, he's already said that he wants to pardon the uh, the January 6th arrestees that he has now labeled as hostages. I guess he, he heard that on the news and, and thought that was a good idea to call them hostages. And he also has an anthem that he opens his rallies with now that is not the national anthem or God bless America, but not even crazy Lee Greenwood, right? It's all it's like the horse vessel song for the 21st century. It is crazy. And militarism has always been a huge part of authoritarianism or fascism or whatever you want to call it. And this is one of those cases where something kind of started as a conspiracy theory. And the longer it goes on, you, you start to wonder. But this whole Tommy Tuberville thing with his effort to keep so many of these general positions and top positions at the Pentagon open. I mean, just as the Times reported that they have this plan to install their own lawyers, nobody thwarted Trump's plans on January 6th more than the generals, you know, especially Milley. And I mean, you just know that they would love to have a military that was totally run by Trump loyalists. And here's the thing we know, Will, throughout history, what does it teach us? Either there are those who are actively like, yeah, I'll do it. And then there are probably more who are like, I don't really like it. But like we've seen with so many other people in so many other places in this Trumpocene era that will go along with it because if it means going from a bird colonel to a star or one star to two stars or two stars to four stars, right? Like they will rationalize their way up the food chain. It's the kind of mindset that we saw in Congress during Trump's first term where and we still see today, frankly. Yeah, and we still see today where, you know, people before Trump was elected president, some people gave vibes that maybe they wouldn't go along with Trump all the time or whatever. And once he got in, they just all fell into line. And, you know, the military, because, you know, you have career professionals like a Mark Milley and people like him in there, was much more able to resist that. So, you know, the people who gave Trump resistance in the first term are the people he's targeting in the second term. It's lawyers, it's generals, it's certain types of bureaucrats. You know, the first term was a learning experience for him, and he learned who were the people who could block the things he wanted to do. And so the second term is going to be an experiment to see what he can do to get rid of those people and replace them with loyalists. And pay back a lot of favors to people, right? Because now, if there's one thing we've known about this guy is that he either loves to A, not pay his bills, or B, if he's going to pay his bills, use somebody else's money to do it. And you talked about it can't happen here, right? Like, it can happen here. Nobody wants to believe it can happen here. I don't think you and I want to believe it can happen here. But that kind of willful blindness, I guess, or willful ignorance maybe is a better way to describe it, Will, is really what has gotten democracies in trouble throughout history, which is when you have a very powerful authoritarian movement, or very energetic, I should say. They tell you, as we've just described in the first 20 minutes of this conversation, what they want to do. They tell you. They're never shy about it. They're never vague about it. And then you have a middle who either A, doesn't believe, or B, says, well, what? it's got to be better than those guys. And then a feckless left who can't stay out of its own, you know, can't keep its own side of the street clean who's sort of tasked with keeping the thing put together. And because they're arguing about A, B, and C, the bad guys are on the march and, you know, can't get their act together. You've seen this throughout history, you know, in Germany prior to 1932, 
the social democrats and the communists were trying to stop Hitler because they were too busy fighting each other. They were the original Hillaryites and Bernieites, you know, fighting each other. It's really a tale as old as time. And and you're right, there's a huge pool in the middle. You know, um, in my mind, I keep harkening back to, it's on my list. I haven't read it yet. I'm, I'm going to get to it. But the book I've been told is really kind of the best immediately after 1945 history of Germany by an American, you know, sociologist type who went into Germany and talked to as many people as he can to basically, you know, to ask them, what were you thinking or why do you think this happened? And the title of the book is We Thought We Were Free, you know, and I mean, I just dread a moment like that happening 10 years from now in the United States where people said, you know, we didn't think it was going to be like this. So, you know, we thought we were free. Right. Well, and remember, too, what, what LBJ said, which is every man's a king who's got someone to look down on. And that's Trump's one of Trump's superpowers is he's so able to say those people aren't as good as you. Those people shouldn't be in charge. Those people aren't like you. Right. And there was a great I've referenced this not for a while, but in Ken Burns series on Vietnam, Will, there's a there's a Marine rifleman from St. Louis. And he said, how many Vietnamese did I kill? I killed one. And he goes, how many? And then he goes off and names like five or six different Vietnamese epithets, racial epithets. And he said, I killed a lot of those. And he goes, you see, that's how easy it is. You turn the subject to an object and then you don't feel bad about it anymore. Yeah. I mean, Trump's got the hatred going in a couple directions. You know, obviously his policies towards the refugees who are flooding the southern border, his policies towards the urban homeless that he wants to put in some kind of Joe Arpaio style tent cities are just horrific. And, you know, that's part of it. But then, you know, and I don't know if this is a segue into my book that you mentioned earlier, but then then there's the hatred of the elites, you know, hatred of the media, hatred of colleges and college professors, hatred hatred of Hollywood movie stars. You know, I mean I mean that's nothing new, as you know, that's been going on on the right for a long time, but the art has been elevated in, in, in the Trump years. Yeah, on the elites though, Will, I mean, the people around Trump are not the prototypical like Soviet tractor driver who's now running a power plant, right? Like they're not pulling these people up from the farm fields and the factory lines, you know, to put them in positions of power. Maybe they will at some point. I mean, Trump went to an Ivy League school. I think Stephen Miller went to Duke. All these guys, whether or not it's Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley, all of these people, they all went to Ivy League schools. I mean, I was going to mention Stephen Miller. I mean, he, he went to Duke. He also grew up in Santa Monica, right? One of the most elite communities in the, in the country. And, you know, these people felt that other kids, other students looked down on them for one reason or another. And, you know, these are the petty resentments of life that get played out on a big stage. But yeah, these are Ivy Leaguers who, whatever their experience, both from personal experience and maybe from political expediency, they hate on the Ivy Leagues, you know? Let's use that as a segue to your book about after the ivory tower falls. And so, you know, college campuses have throughout recent memory, you know, the last hundred years or whatever, have been hotbeds of activism, not surprisingly. Uh, in the wake of the 10-7 attacks in Israel, Will, and Israel's response, we have seen a lot of marches by pro-Palestinian student groups. We have seen images and video of pro-Palestinian kids ripping down the, the pictures of hostages that Hamas is holding. You know, Rashida Tlaib is very much a congresswoman from Michigan, is very much in line with this, which, you know, they see Israel is not a state, but basically, you know, genocidal, white occupying force. 
So tell us a little bit about your book and how you see it in the context of what we're seeing on campus now. I see it very much in the context of kind of the big turning point that happened in America's attitude towards college and higher education, which, like the turning point for a lot of things, was the 1960s, right? Trying to condense real quick here, you know, you had this kind of golden age of college that started with the GI Bill, you know, and the realization that middle class kids were college material, could thrive by getting a college education. And society was down with that. You know, college was was never totally free, although in California and New York City, you know, the universities were tuition free and they had broad public support. And part of the whole ethos of college in that same era was liberal arts. You know, you had more sociology and English and philosophy majors. And we want to develop critical thinkers, right? Because critical thinkers are critical for saving democracy. Then came the 1960s and you had first the civil rights movement and then the Vietnam War. And critical thinkers thought there was a lot of U.S. hypocrisy in both of those and started protesting. And this created an opening on the right, you know, that these kids were ungrateful, that, you know, we gave them this opportunity and they're, they're using it to turn against America. And, and, you know, and then the leader, the archetype of all this was Ronald Reagan. You know, Ronald Reagan was elected governor of California in 1966. He was the underdog. He ended up winning in a landslide. And I think he beat Pat Brown, right? He beat Pat Brown by a million votes. And a key to that victory was running against what was going on on college campuses, especially Berkeley. You just had had the free speech movement, which was this big protest, uh, you know, in favor of students' rights on campus. You know, Reagan called them dirty hippies. He said they, uh, you know, dressed like Jane and smelled like Cheetah, looked like Tarzan, you know. Um, and middle-class voters ate that up, right? So you had this switch. So all of a sudden, it's not an accident that college tuitions started to rise. I mean, Reagan believed that. Reagan said taxpayers shouldn't be subsidizing the intellectual curiosity of, of young people. You know, one of, one of his advisors said, we can't have an educated proletariat because that would be dynamite. So it's all about keeping people stupid. I don't know if I would like totally oversimplify it that much, but uh, it's close. <laughs> it's close to that. Yeah. I mean, in the late 1960s, the majority of, of college freshmen, according to this big national survey that was done every year, said the purpose of going to college was developing a meaningful philosophy of life. By the mid-1980s, that had flipped. So the overwhelming majority said the purpose of going to college is to prepare for getting a job. So there was this effort to make college more of a cog in the capitalist system, right? That it's only to churn out indebted workers who will be grateful for their jobs. They'll owe money. They'll have to work to pay it back. They won't be critical thinkers. They won't protest because then they might not get a job, which as we see in the, in the current situation can be true sometimes. You know, so jump ahead to recent times and, you know, the 2020 and the, and the George Floyd protest movement was a big reckoning for people on the right because they saw the size of these protests for racial justice and they saw how many young people were taking part of these and and not just in New York or Berkeley or whatever but you know small towns in in Ohio and even in the Mountain West you know you had people marching for Black Lives Matter and there was this effort well what's causing our young people to do this and the answer was it must be in the schools right so this started I mean, you see Ron DeSantis is like the, I guess he's like the Ronald Reagan of his time, right? That he's trying to... Uh, without the talent, of course. Yeah, totally without the talent. But 
you know, with with the don't say gay law, with laws that prevent you from talking about anti-racism, that sort of thing. And to get back to your question, like, how does that tie into the current situation? Well, you know, taking the most extreme, you know, and, and these are bad, terrible things. Anti-Semitism is terrible. And we have seen on the edge of these protests, we've seen a few instances of really bad anti-Semitism. But that's given people who have a much broader agenda to take down higher education, that's given them something to work with. You know, people are getting an inch with this and they're running a mile to try and take down higher education. So that's where we're at. It's a scary time for free speech. You know, it's a scary time for colleges. They were already hurting financially, particularly state universities were not getting the state support that they need. And this may just be throwing gasoline on that fire. That's the other thing, too, especially as we talk about the people that are the forefront of this sort of anti-college, anti-higher education thing, right? Pointy-headed intellectuals, again, Will, are often the people who are the biggest beneficiaries of it. Well, sure. Ron DeSantis went to what Harvard and Yale, right? You know, so he's a classic example. But even if they don't know it personally, I think instinctively that Reagan model keeps coming back. It's an old story, and his situation in the Middle East is just given it a new twist and has given new life to this impulse that was already there, I think. Well, and to bring us back to the national conversation, such as it is, Will, is that many of these younger college kids are not white. They are kids of color. And I was on the phone with one of your colleagues earlier today as we were recording this, and they said, so what do you think, what do you think, you know, when Trump wins the primary, what do you think their strategy will be? And I said, scare the white people, scare the hell out of the white people. It's what they did in 2020 didn't work. It's what they'll try and do again this time. They don't really have a lot else. When your coalition, Will, is 90% white, <laughs> right? And the states that you need to win are overwhelmingly white. You know, what do you have to do? Scare the hell out of the moms and dads and grandmothers and grandfathers in the suburbs of Detroit and Grand Rapids and Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Milwaukee, right? And Green Bay. Like when it comes to this, this will not be a complicated strategy. To your point, you will see lots of stuff about kids on campuses. You will see lots of young black men who have done a flash mob of, of theft at some sort of store. Like we could write these campaign ads, Will, just sitting here, the two of us, because, again, just like they tell us what they want to do in a second Trump term, they tell us exactly what they're going to talk about and how they're going to talk about it, because that's all they got. They're not going to talk about the positive future. They don't care. Well, no one's going to claim her for a red Caesar unless you have chaos. And whatever potential chaos there is out there, and, and this weekend we saw large marches in lots of cities for the Palestinian cause, and they were incredibly diverse. I mean, they, they looked a lot, frankly, like the Black Lives Matter marches since three years ago, you know, very diverse, lots of black and brown people of all types, you know. And Fox News loves that. That's their, that's their B-roll, you know. They're just waiting for somebody to set a convenience store on fire or something like that. That's the thing you're going to see on Fox News over and over again. And, you know, their average viewer is 65, 70 years old, and they're not getting out to these places, but they see what they see on TV and they're scared. Well, it also reinforces the stereotypes that have been drilled into them for 65 or 70 years, right? Absolutely. And it's been good business for Rupert Murdoch to play on those stereotypes. You know, it's got viewers coming back and it's been a long time coming, but you can really see the, de the detrimental effect on American life. And, and now with this 2024 election, it's really, it's really all coming to a head. Before I let you go, Will, what else are you looking at? 
you know, I, I'm looking a lot. In fact, my most recent column that was published yesterday, I'm, I'm paying a lot of attention to how the media is covering all this because, you know, frankly, I feel they've been covering this with, you know, what I would call a passive voice, right? It's frustrating because even when there's really good reporting, like that story I mentioned in the Times last week about the Trump lawyers, you know, the language, you know, in, instead of saying that Trump is looking for loyalists who will instill his brand of authoritarianism throughout the government, you know, it's like Trump wants to hire a new style of lawyer in his administration. And it's very, and I think the average, like not super politicized person reading that story, I don't think they would get it. I don't think they would understand. It's like, oh, well, that doesn't sound too important when actually, no, you're talking about undermining the underpinnings of democracy here, but you don't get that from the language. And and you see that a lot. You see that in these puff piece profiles of, you know, what a nice guy Mike Johnson, the new House Speaker is, when he's the most extreme government leader we've ever had in this country, you know. And a weirdo. I mean, really weird, too. Well, yeah, that too. You know, the, there was a story in Politico, I think, last week, Will, about, and the headline was something like, the brash young men trying to make conservatism cool or something. I'm like, these are not brash people. They are fascists. <laughs> like, that's the word that you should have said the fascists trying to make Republicans cool. Yeah. Well, you know, the media, the media is trained to use words like brash or controversial when you're afraid a more loaded word is going to uh, cause people to cancel their subscriptions or get you in trouble somehow. Or, you know, in my column, I mentioned the the onions story and headline the other day about about the whole Middle East thing, which is, you know, the onion stands with Israel because it seems like you get in less trouble that way. And it was funny because, you know, you see that attitude permeating the media. And it's not just about the Middle East. That's a very loaded emotional issue for a lot of people. But you see it with Trump, you know, that they are really scared to like label it with the kind of autocracy building that it is. But of course, as I interviewed uh, McKay Coppins about his Romney biography, and Romney says all these people are scared of violence, of course, when you play into that, which is I don't want to do this because I'm afraid of the reaction of those people, then you engender more of that behavior and you become less and less willing to say things. And as someone on our team has said, when you're covering this stuff, Will, how do you tell both sides of a lie? You know, when, when Trump, according to The Washington Post, counter, you know, lied 30,000 times during his first term or more than 30,000 times. And that's a lot of lies. And, you know, it, it's hard because it's important to call out everyone. And yet when you do it a lot, people say, oh, you're you're being shrill, right? You know, that you're, uh, you know, why don't you give it up? I get, I get constantly accused of what's it called? TDS. Trump or, derangement you know, syndrome. Trump derangement syndrome. You know, I'm a, yes, I, I am a sufferer. I'm a chronic sufferer. Yeah. yeah but then it, it bleeds into the news coverage. And it's it's unfortunate, you know, getting back to Mike Johnson, he, he told a whopper the other day, you know, when he said that, you know, a whopper that became legislation that you could save money by cutting the number of IRS agents and use that to pay for Israel. When, you know, I think somebody who's done third grade math knows that if you fire the people who bring in the revenue, you're going to have less revenue, not more revenue. I mean, that's pretty basic. But a lot of news outlets just repeated what he said and didn't go that extra mile to say, this is clearly untrue or this makes no sense, you know, and we've got to be doing that. Well, that is for sure. Well, Will, um, before we let you go, if you still dare to be on social media, where can we find you there and where can we find your work? Well, despite Daily frustrations. I'm still pretty active on the the site formerly known as Twitter. I'm at at 
will underscore bunch. If you sign up tonight, you can get my weekly newsletter that comes out every Tuesday. You can get tomorrow's edition about Trump and the dictatorship issue. And you get that by going to inquire.com backslash bunch. Inquire.com backslash bunch is my weekly newsletter, and that'll alert you to other stuff I'm doing. So uh, you'll be connected. And then, of course, buy the book after the Ivory Tower falls. Absolutely. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen on threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. And on Substack, the home front, read it, sign up. Will Bunch, thanks for joining me. Everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.